Hi, I'm Gary Duncan. Along with my family and all of us at KFUO, I wish you a Merry Christmas. We read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Romans 6.23, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. See, when the Bible speaks of salvation, it's a gift from God. It's something given to us freely, not something we've earned. During this holiday season, I hope you're comforted by the words of Scripture. Also, during this time of giving, please pray for KFUO. Pray that we continue to have the resources needed to proclaim Christ worldwide. We read in Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Our mission at KFUO is to proclaim the word of Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Would you help us do that? please consider making a gift today to KFUO. Call 800-844-0524. That's 800-844-0524. Thanks for your support and Merry Christmas. Classical Lutheran education, it has a a wonderful history. What about the future? What does classical Lutheran education look like today? What are some great things we can learn from classical Lutheran education? Perhaps we could implement in our own homes, in our schools, as we continue to educate the next generation. You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to our friends at Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family. Find out more about them on our website, kfuo.org. Look for Concordia University, Wisconsin. In studio with me today, Heather Smith. She's an advocate for classical Lutheran education, a writer, and a member of the Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education. And so excited to have Heather in studio, new uh, new wife here, pastor's wife here in the Midwest, and a former classical Lutheran education educator. I shouldn't say former because you're still educating. You're educating me today, so I don't know if former is the word, but you used to spend more time in the classroom than you get to right now. This is true, yes. But uh, spending some time with me in the studio about classical Lutheran education, tell me a little bit about your, um, your, your work, your vocation as a classical Lutheran educator. When did that begin? Well, it for me, it began straight out of college, um, and I had really very little knowledge of classical education at that time. Um, I'd heard a little bit about it um, from a doctrine professor that I had, but was not very aware of it until I interviewed with uh, the the principal, the headmaster and pastor of the school where I ended up taking my first call. Uh, that was in 2003. And I taught for uh, a total of 12 years at a classical Lutheran school in Wyoming. Um, what did you think, what were, your, um, what were your notions about classical education prior to being in a classical Lutheran school? <laughs> I did not know all that much about it, although uh, my background is that I had been homeschooled for all my education. And as I started to understand a little bit just from my interviewing there, I realized that much of what they were doing was really what I had learned and that it was the kind of education that that I appreciated and wanted to to teach in. Um, There, you know, I think my understanding of classical education has grown over the years in terms of you know, going from very basics of just like, oh, well, it's a it's a back to basics to curriculum to understanding more about what its real goal is in terms of forming a human being and and a young Christian. 
what um, what really shaped you in your understanding of classical education during your years as a teacher in the classroom? In you were at a, a Lutheran church and school in Wyoming, is that right? That's right. Yes. A lot of it came just from the practice of teaching in that all, all those mm-hmm. years. Most of my teaching, uh, I taught one year of third and fourth grade, but most of my teaching was sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And I loved it because I got uh, to to really study the meaty uh, history and literature and those sorts of things. And just engaging with those things taught me a lot about the, the wonderful ideas and... Um, knowledge that has been shared throughout history that we can pass on to children. And I also had wonderful colleagues there. And so we had lots of conversations about this uh, and did a lot of reading, um, both modern writers who are, who are working to recapture classical education, but also from ancient writers on how education was done in, uh, in former times. The, tell me about the students that you taught when you were in Wyoming. Well, I love them all. They're wonderful <laughs> students, but um, they came from a variety of backgrounds. And I think some people think that, well, classical education is only for elite students who are really, really bright. Um, but what I found was students could be successful if they uh, were in our school all the way up. They just built on the knowledge and mm-hmm. children just love to absorb things. Um and they're, they're, you know, many ways just the regular students that you would find in any Lutheran school. But I think one of the things that that the school I was at and many Lutheran schools or classical schools um, really work at is we had a, a great school culture where the students uh, understood and appreciated that we do things that uh, not all schools do mm-hmm. and that that's a good thing. It's it, They enjoyed being challenged and um, and being able to do those things. What ages did you teach? Most of my teaching was with 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, so about 11 to 13-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Um, the age when I, I joke that, you know, there are days when you want to just shove them in the closet, and there are the other <laughs> days when they're the best kids in the world because they ask the most insightful questions, and they really want to understand what's going on in the world. When I was a classroom educator, I think fifth and sixth grade was really the ideal place for me as an educator. Um, God bless those who uh, who who enjoy and uh, and are very gifted at teaching students who are older than that and younger than that. I, I did all right in third and fourth grade mm-hmm. as well, um, and I loved teaching in uh, kindergarten and first grade. But I was just tired by the end of the day, yes. especially kindergarten. I had to take a nap after those. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, I, I hear you with the, the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I, I really enjoyed that because I think at that age, they're starting to uh, engage in, in conversation and even healthy debate mm-hmm. and, and discussions at that time. Uh, so I enjoyed that a lot. What was what was your favorite uh, subject to teach? Well, I... It would probably be a toss-up between history and literature, mm-hmm. and those two things I, I often tied together quite closely. We'd try and read literature that reflected what we were learning in history and and all the sorts of things um, in theology and science and so forth would mm-hmm. tie into the history we were studying as well. But I think literature is probably my real love uh, because you see in that um, so many things that can teach you about what what is it to be a good human being? And you can see the examples of, of good and bad there. 
And then along comes a young pastor, sweeps you off your feet, and, <laughs> and brings you back here to St. Louis. Now you're spending uh, much of your time as a not only as a pastor's wife, but also as a writer. You've been doing some writing and also been uh, very encouraging to me here. I've appreciated all the feedback that you've provided to us and and the, the insights that, that you share on uh, faith and family and, and education topics as well. So back here, and I should say now yeah. in St. Louis, uh, and uh, spending some time here. Reflecting on your time as an educator, um, what would you say you miss about the classroom? Mm. I suppose the fact that having to prepare all the time, while it's very exhausting, it also keeps me as a perpetual student. I'm, I'm constantly learning more and refreshing my skills and revisiting things where I find new insights mm. there. And while I can do some of that on my own, it's it's not as easy to do it when you aren't on a schedule constantly preparing. When uh, when there's a bell or a schedule, something to remind you that you have to be there at a certain time. Exactly. The, when the students show up, <laughs> when you know they're going to be there, then you need to be ready. It's a little bit different, huh? Well, I'd like to take a look at some topics. We've we've been talking behind the scenes about some topics that we'd like to address when it comes to classical Lutheran mm-hmm. education, and and there's a myriad of topics that that we could discuss. But let's talk. Um, let's start with the the younger children. I have a four year old son, so I, uh, as I was thinking about today's conversation, this this topic is. Um, well, is is important to us, and I've seen some examples of it. And that's when it comes to the topic of memorization. Some of us think memorization is um, the one that that uh, that is boring, or that we shouldn't expect children to do it because we don't want to do it either uh, as adults. But what are your thoughts on memorization? Mm. Yes, I. Uh... Memorization has really gotten a bad rap for many years now. It's it's a drill and kill, and that's terrible. <laughs> we don't want that. But and and particularly as we come into the era of uh, googling everything, I, I used to have students from time to time who would say, "Well, I can just Google it." But why? So why why should we memorize? Um, I think that the real blessing of memorization is that it gives you. Uh, a treasury of knowledge, something that you possess and, and, and really mm-hmm. almost makes you, you know, royalty in that you have these things that can't be taken away from you. And you need to have that kind of knowledge for everything else you do. Uh, any kind of creative endeavor will thrive if you have the knowledge and you don't have to go look it up somewhere. Sure. And I can think of a number of situations in life where that would be beneficial. I think pastors who who make visits on shut-ins can attest to this mm-hmm. uh, chiefly. That is, uh, when visiting, um, you know, the, the aged members of their congregation, of their flock, and perhaps their memory has failed them in some ways, that uh, I, time upon time I've heard pastors share this, that uh, those who whose memories may have failed them in some ways when they, they pray together or sing a hymn together, they don't need a hymnal or uh, anything in front of them because many of them, the, those things is just, just come back, come flooding back. And whether it's the, the liturgy or, uh, you know, catechesis, the Lord's Prayer, the, the creed, the, uh, you know, hymns that are, are so meaningful to us as Christians, those things uh, they've carried with them for so long. Yes, they were probably in their childhood required to memorize those things, but now serve in a serve them in a in another way. In that uh, it, it serves as a reminder and uh, a great foundation of our faith. 
Yes, I, I completely agree. I I was thinking about this, reflecting a little, and it came to my mind um, the collect for the word that encourages that or, or requests that we um, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest mm-hmm. the word. And and that's what memorization is. You you learn it, and then you can inwardly digest it. It's there all the time, and uh, you know whatever situation you end up in you have those mm-hmm. those comforting things with you I just had a recently had a conversation with pastor Whedon here at, on faith and family regarding his new book on um, uh, thank praise serve and obey mm-hmm. on, on on piety recovering the joys of piety and that that very topic of the the power of God's word um, and and being in God's word on a regular basis hearing God's word on a regular basis is one of the the, the chief habits that he discusses in the book and when we if, if God's word is so powerful why would we not want to um, read mark inwardly digest carry that with us in our hearts and in our minds as we go about our days as we go about uh, all of our days um, that uh, having that word of God with us by memory, by heart, I should say. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's not just rote memory. Rote memory serves some purpose, but knowing it by heart, I think, uh, perhaps means something different than just knowing something by memory. Mm-hmm. What do you, would you have something to say about that? I think that this ties in very well as we think about classical education on a larger scale. Very often, we're talking about looking for the the three the three transcendental things of truth, goodness, and beauty. Mm-hmm. And those are things that the only way you can really know what those are is by something outside of yourself. You don't look inside yourself to figure out what's what goodness is. We know we're sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we memorize scripture or hymns or other things that are good and true and beautiful, it does... It, become part of us and change how we see those things, how we think about them. And it is very powerful, as you say, that the word is is powerful. And so you are taking it and making it part of yourself. So how do you help a first grader or a third grader see that? As adults now, we can look at this and say, yes, I understand the word of God is powerful, is beautiful, is good, uh, that there is nothing in me that is good in and of myself. Uh, I need these things that are good. Therefore, I can commit to... Uh, memorizing this verse this week or these verses this week or this passage, how do you help, how do you motivate a a first grader or a third grader or even a sixth, seventh, eighth grader uh, to to memorize, to commit to memory, scripture or catechism? First thing that I would say is to realize that by and large, children will not... um, be turned off by things or think they're difficult unless they've heard adults say that they are. So if we don't go around telling children, oh, well, we have to do our memorization, you do that and and they're going to resist. But if you just make it part of your daily life, and I would say certainly in schools, and I think Lutheran schools have have done that well, but, um, but even within family life, that it's just part of what we do. Um, another thing kind of laying the foundation is don't wait until first grade even to start. Memory is so much easier the younger the child is. And when children start the habits of memory early on, 
it becomes easy. What I always found with sixth, seventh, and eighth grade is that the students who had been in our school and had memorized large portions of scripture and catechism for year after year, they could do their weekly memory work of five to six Bible verses, a section of the catechism, and a poem they could sit down in 30 minutes and they'd have it really well because they had established that habit. Mm -hmm. So establishing the habit early on is really key. Um, Of course, if you haven't done that, I would still say, just go ahead and start. Don't ever think, oh, well, it's too late. Um, Just begin somewhere. And then the basic step to memorization, uh, the Romans would say, repetitio est mater memoriae. Repetition is the mother of memory. You have to find ways to repeat it. So you know, this can be as easy as just parroting back and forth with mm-hmm. young children before they can read. Um, older children, they can write it out and then erase words and, you know, uh, compete with each other to see who can say it the best. Uh, you can set it to music. That's a fantastic way to increase memory. You can, uh, you know, just, uh, well, even just sort of study it and then mentally test yourself later on. Um, just as an example, my husband and I are working on memorizing an Advent hymn during, as part of our Advent devotions. And so we'll, we'll sing a few stanzas of it at our evening devotions, but then I'll kind of test myself to see how I'm doing while I'm washing dishes or, uh, you know, working around the kitchen to find how well do I really know it? I'm glad you you mentioned that, especially with younger children, this is just what we do. Unless uh, unless we convey that it's something that is uh, dreadful to do, uh, young children will find it just as is enjoyable to uh, to memorize or to learn something as as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also this is just what we do this is this is just who we are i think you know mm-hmm. i i noticed last night in a conversation in our household uh with my son uh, why do we do this what's your name what's your last name your last name is bates are you a bates boy this is what bates boys do <laughs> yeah we take care of mommy we do this uh the this is what bates do and and just uh helping him realize that this is what we do. This is part of being a child of God. This is what is part of being a child in this family is about. I love that. Yes. Yeah. And that that's very closely connected with what I said earlier about schools working to build a common culture where Mm -hmm. it's just the idea that this is what we do and it may be different from other places. And we can actually take a healthy pride in that, that, you know, we memorize an entire chapter of Luke two in first and second grade and recite it at the Christmas program, you know, and, and it's just the natural thing that we do because this is who we are. And our son has learned, you know, the, the the 10 commandments, the creed and the Lord's prayer uh, and some hymns as well, uh, hymns and songs. And he learned the the 10 commandments, the creed and the Lord's prayer pretty easily and pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And if we do them out of order, he lets me know <laughs> if I miss one, if I, if I skip something, he lets me know. Yes. Yeah. Well, kids love that. They love to, uh, to feel that sense of, uh, knowing more than the adults or catching them out. <laughs> yes. But you know, he's four and he's, he's learned, mm-hmm. he, he had the 10 commandments, the creed and the Lord's prayer down 
pretty early. I want to say early three, maybe two. Yes. I'm not sure. He, he had those down pretty early. And, uh, and some nights, you know, now it's at a point where he, uh, he knows them, but he doesn't necessarily say them or <laughs> out loud yeah. with us because, you know, don't want to do exactly what mommy and daddy say. Mm-hmm. But, but he, I mean, some would say, you know, at two or three, that it's too young to be able to learn those things. He learned them without me even intentionally trying to teach mm-hmm. them to him. We were just praying these things every night and he, he picked up on them very quickly. Oh, yes. And, and I think parents should definitely be aware that kids will memorize. It just depends on whether they're, you're going to uh, give them something mm-hmm. that you really want them to memorize or whether they're just going to memorize, you know, the Disney songs that they hear somewhere else that may or may not be what you want uh, them to inwardly digest. And to repeat every oh, absolutely. Oh, many things that you say. <laughs> um, yes, he's memorized and repeated things back to me that uh, I didn't realize he was paying attention <laughs> and used them against me. <laughs> yes. So memorization is good for scripture, catechism. Uh, you mentioned poetry earlier. Mm-hmm. Some of the students uh, that, that you taught before uh, also learned poetry. Tell me more about that. Well, I have a soft spot in my heart for poetry just because um, I, I do love all kinds of literature and, and those sorts of things. Um, as Lutherans, I, I used to wonder, why don't we have any great Lutheran poets? We got, you know, we got Bach for music and we got Lutheran scientists and other people. But what I came to realize is we do. We have great Lutheran poets. There are the hymnists, um, mm-hmm. you know, Paul Gerhardt and others like him. And so certainly... I want to mention that that under poetry we can include memorizing hymns because that is some of the most beautiful mm-hmm. poetry there. But I think it's great to memorize um, other poetry, secular poetry as well, um, because if I go back to my, my favorite three things here, uh, poetry is one of the best ways to express the good, true, beautiful ideas. Um, it's words put into an intentionally beautiful form Mm -hmm. to communicate some deep truth and so it it um if you memorize poetry what it does for you is fills you with those great examples of how language can be used and then you find it starts to influence your own thinking and writing um for little children too is just great to be able to hear rhythm and rhyme and all those sorts of things. I think it's, as we learn those, those uh, whether it's poem or hymns or, or even stories and, and, and literature, mm-hmm. as you were sharing, the, to, to carry those with us too. Oh, daddy, that's like such and such yes. character in that story or in that book. Um, to, to help use those as analogies for, for teaching other things that are true, good, and beautiful. You're absolutely right. Uh, I think that's, that's the reason to, mm-hmm. to teach stories um, and, and part of why we should make sure we're choosing really good stories mm-hmm. and poems that, that do communicate what we want our children to love. Right now I'm uh, reading uh, C.S. Lewis's the magician's nephew mm. and thinking, Oh man, there are so many great uh, illustrations, so many great th- yes. <laughs> things in here. can't wait until uh, a few years down the road, perhaps when my son is older and can appreciate the mm-hmm. story a little bit more. Uh, there's so many great things uh, that in, in, in that writing, just a brilliant writer. 
and a storyteller. And to be able to use those to help my son learn about um, many things that are true, good, and uh, beautiful, especially about God. When you look at the, the character of Aslan in, mm-hmm. in, the, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, so many characteristics of him that I think are intentionally reflections of, uh, of our God, um, you know, just examples of grace that are obviously we're going to teach from teach our child from scripture. But I, I yes, think that's a, but... a, there were some lines from the story that I thought, oh, man, I'd like to commit that to memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, this may be a little bit of a side note, but one of the things that I started doing with my students towards the end of the time was having them keep a commonplace book, which is simply a journal where they would copy out lines from stories mm-hmm. that really struck them as something they wanted to remember. And, huh. and then you've got a record of those things and you may or may not memorize them but you've got sure. that that record of those those things that did strike you because you're absolutely right that this is the great power of literature. Um, we even see Christ teaching in parables. Those things, the images strike us much more mm-hmm. than just um, hearing an exposition of something. Uh, so you said a, a, just a commonplace journal? Is that you, yeah, so this was an idea um, that came about, I, I want to say... Oh, I might get my time period wrong here. Um, Renaissance, a little bit after that, that, that people would call this their commonplace book. Uh, it became very popular again during kind of the Victorian era. And it was hmm. just a way as people read things that they would they have a common place to put down all those various thoughts that, that they came across hmm. and things that they wanted to keep and remember. So it really was the early version of Facebook, (laughs) but they just didn't share it with everyone necessarily. Not necessarily. Although I I think there were times when, you know, people might exchange books or something and see what other people had been reading as well. So, yeah. That's an interesting concept. Essentially, I mean, we do that with our phones today. You see something you like to snap a picture of it so that you can remember it for, you know, later. I, I remember, well, just yesterday visiting my parents and... Uh, I said, you know, there, there's a Christmas cookie recipe that I'd like. <laughs> and of course, my mom pulls out the handwritten three by five card. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm going to write down, <laughs> copy everything by hand that's on that card. What do I do? I snap a picture of it. Now, granted, had I handwritten everything, I probably would know more about that recipe already had I handwritten True. it. So there's something lost in that art. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and and I have I have made it my practice to keep a commonplace book, and it is true, you know, for something like a recipe, I agree, snapping a picture is probably the better option because I don't need to <laughs> remember the details, but but it is true when you handwrite something, it you have to slow down and let it have time to sink in. However, had I handwritten it, I would probably know the list of ingredients, <laughs> so that when I go to the store and I don't have that picture of that commonplace book with me, I'd probably already know the ingredients and be able to buy them. Exactly. It's true. <laughs> there are trade-offs. So there are certainly benefits to um, to good old-fashioned handwriting, copying something by handwriting or committing to memory that we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier when it comes to scripture or catechism. Other tips for helping us uh, commit things to memory, uh, these beautiful things, these good mm. things? Um, one of the things I think I found most helpful for myself is... Uh, to not think of memorization as a once and done kind of process, but mm. as something that I need to revisit year after year. Um, 
you know, you can, I, I think most school children who have had to memorize things know that you can sit down and just cram it in and spit it back out and, you know, get it passed off um, and then go and forget it in the next two days. Um, if you really want to, to know it well, it's good to revisit it. And this was one of the wonderful things I found as a teacher. Uh, I basically had a three-year cycle of things I was teaching, and so I'd come back to them. And after you've been through it every third year for a number of cycles, you really start to know it better. Um, <laughs> so true, so true. I agree. <laughs> My guest today, Heather uh, Heather Smith, she's an advocate for classical Lutheran education, a writer and member of Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education. We have more to talk about classical Lutheran education when we come back from this break. You're listening to Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee, with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. Faith and Family is a production of KFUO Radio. Christ for you anytime, anywhere since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Let's put a face to one of the many people victimized by Obamacare. Four-year-old Colette Briggs suffers from an aggressive form of leukemia. But like many insurance carriers, the one covering Colette's family withdrew from the market. Those that remain often implement draconian cost-cutting measures like eliminating larger research hospitals from its plans. In this case, they cut the hospital specializing in pediatric cancer care that's provided essential treatment for Colette over the last two years. This is critical treatment. She needs to stay alive. On the Obamacare exchanges, over 40% of the most popular silver plans have narrowed their networks of medical providers. It's tragic that many pay for abortion on demand while eliminating life-saving care for countless others. Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Curious about an active retirement in a Christ-centered community in Central Florida? Lutheran Haven's brand new residence, The Landings, offers spacious villa-style homes, convenient amenities, coupled with a low-maintenance lifestyle that makes for an ideal retirement. With more than 50% of the community already sold, now is the time to discover why so many have made the decision to call The Landings at Lutheran Haven Home. Call 888-298-5590 or visit lutheranhaven.org slash KFUO to discover how you you can get the most out of your retirement at Lutheran Haven. Welcome back to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates, talking about classical Lutheran education with my guest, Heather Smith. She's an advocate for classical Lutheran education, a writer, a member of Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education. I should also include 
the lovely wife of Pastor Sean Smith, who you hear here on Worldwide KFUO on uh, Concord Matters and Sharper Iron from time to time. So it's nice to have the Smith family in-house from time to time, making the trek over from Wine Hill, Illinois, is that right? Yes. So uh, visiting us all the way from the the, uh, the quaint little parsonage in Wine Hill, Illinois, <laughs> the congregations that, uh, that you both serve. Yes, we serve uh, at St. Paul's in Wine Hill, Illinois, mm-hmm. and uh, Emmanuel in West Point or Campbell. Hill, mm-hmm. Illinois. Wine Hill sounds like a lovely place. Sounds like, uh, I don't know, it sounds like there, are there wineries there? Is that how it got the name? You know, there used to be uh-huh. vineyards there. They've been torn down, but my husband has a great scheme for, for <laughs> winemaking to, to renew this. And meanwhile, we sometimes call it Wind Hill because it definitely has not lost the wind there. It's very windy <laughs> yes, there. We are talking about classical Lutheran education today. Uh, in, in the first segment, covering the topic of memorization for children and for us adults as well, and gave us some great tips, uh, especially just our attitude toward memorization. That sets the tone for children as well, but also uh, in using a, a variety of methods for memorizing, revisiting something. It's not just a one and done sort of thing when we memorize something, but revisiting things, uh, those those things that we're committing to memory over and over again, not necessarily not to... Uh, to to the point that it's um, that we're berating ourselves with it, but uh, as you said, on like your your lesson plans, we're on a three year cycle, so you revisit again over time, and it's it, it makes that all the more committed to memory. And I, I think all the more meaningful. Now moving on to a topic that uh, I think in in classical Lutheran education, when it comes to classical education, if I understand correctly, rhetoric rhetoric comes later in education, perhaps for older children. Is that right? You could say that, although I. I I think um, that there are certainly ways you can start to teach young children about rhetoric as well. But it is true that it's it's something a little more complex that um, will be better understood and uh, done by older children. How do you define rhetoric today? Mm. Well, the first thing I would want to say is that... Uh, generally speaking, rhetoric has a pretty bad rap these days. It sounds like a dirty word, you know, political rhetoric. People are spewing rhetoric. And that really is a quite the change from a traditional understanding of rhetoric. For many centuries, it was just the pinnacle of education, what people were aspiring towards. So the definition that I kind of like to use, um, might hear it translate a little differently from time to time, But from Aristotle, he says that rhetoric is the art of discovering all the possible means of persuasion. Um, So you're looking at, I want to persuade somebody of something. How do I do this? And and then I would just add on to that. A little bit later, writer, um, the Roman author Quintilian, who's less well-known, he speaks about rhetoric or the rhetorician, the person who uses rhetoric, as being a good man skilled in speaking. And I think that is a key, for us, especially as Christians. Rhetoric um, can devolve into, I just want to get my way and to persuade you by twisting your arm to, <laughs> to under- believe whatever I say. But we should treat it as, I have truth here. I want to persuade you of this truth. How can I do that? And so learning the many ways to do that. So what does that look like in a classroom for your students? What, what did, how did you go about teaching rhetoric? Well, teaching in, in the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade classroom, um, one of the things I think that you can discover is there, there are 
are many, many aspects to rhetoric. And so I would take um, bits and pieces of things. One of the key things that I would have my students look for as they read or as they were writing is what we call the two pillars of rhetoric, audience and purpose. In other words, who is this written for and why was it written? What are you trying to persuade those people to believe? And every piece of writing should have an intended audience and purpose. So you can start to look for those things. It's easier probably for older children to look for those things. Um, but another thing that we can look at on um, kind of a smaller level with rhetoric is what we would consider the rhetorical figures, ways of using words uh, in certain patterns. And this was a lot of fun for my students. Um, there, You can find lists of rhetorical figures on the internet in books and so forth. And um, most of them are ways of arranging words. So, for instance, we might have anaphora, which is beginning uh, successive phrases with the same word. Um, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are true, you know, that they see that pattern. And there are many, many others like this. And then we would have fun because they would start to look for those things in our memory work, actually. It's a great tie-in with memory. Um, and then also I would ask them to use some of them in their writing. And it's a lot of fun to see what, what children will do when they're trying those things for the first time. What does this mean in our the world in which we live today, a world that is shaped by by social media, by um, entitlement, uh, and, and by entitlement, uh, in our culture in North America, that entitlement may mean, it doesn't necessarily need, mean for the wealthy, entitlement, a lot of us feel entitled, whether we're wealthy or not, we feel entitled to this or that. Um, and so if you don't agree with me, <laughs> then you're just wrong. <laughs> Uh, and that we see that in social media a lot. Yes. Sure. I think that that's one of the great pitfalls of social media is that those pillars of audience and purpose are hard to locate. You know, when you're posting something on Facebook, well, okay, so I guess the audience is all the people on your friends list, but usually that's a pretty diverse group of people. And I think people rarely think when they're posting to social media, what's my purpose in this? Um, they tend to post things that uh, make them look good or smart or, um, you know, as they take a decisive stand on something. But I think they rarely are really wanting to persuade people. Social media is not a great place for that art of gentle persuasion. So I, I do think that if people thought of those things a little bit more, it might change how we approach some of what what goes out on the many forms of media that we have um, thinking about. Who am I writing to? And what do I really want to persuade them of? So what does that look like with 6th, 7th, and 8th graders um, who, who grow up in this world, this fast-paced social media world that we live in? Uh, what were ways that, that you helped 6th, 7th, and 8th graders learn this and use it in their daily lives. A lot of what I was still doing at uh, that time with them is is having them take models of good writing and imitate that. Um, 
some students in that age range are ready to go out and、uh, you know speak publicly or do things like that that、um, can. Can put that rhetoric into use, but a lot of them are still kind of learning it, and so it really is,、uh, in a sense, like with memorization, where you're going to take something good and and inwardly digest it.、Um, with rhetoric, you can do the same thing. Let me take a good example of a speech that someone wrote,、um, the Gettysburg Address, or something like that, and think of what was the What was the purpose for this?、Um, kind of analyzing that and then imitating. Okay, I'm going to write something similar for this.、Um, I did not do a lot with my students of having them try and do, you know, write an editorial for the newspaper or something like that.、Um, partly because they really were still kind of learning how to apply these things、uh, without just. Sort of feeling that、uh, you know, well, obviously I'm right and the world is wrong, so they should want to do whatever I say. You know. That that at times must seem very foreign to us in our culture. That you know, it's I think it's far more common for us to think well that if if someone doesn't agree with us, it's either what I believe or it's wrong.、Mm-hmm. There's no. There are no steps in between to persuade someone.、Mm-hmm. I find, you know, certainly from a Christian perspective, one of the verses of Scripture that I would often, often remind my students of is from Ephesians four, where Paul tells us he commends us that we ought to be speaking the truth in love, and we would talk about this、um, as we would maybe sometimes look at articles from the newspaper or something like that. Um, or just things that they had heard, or they wanted to discuss、um, that their parents had seen on social media, or something like that. That you need both those things: speaking the truth and doing it in love, because、um, a lot of people fall off one end or the other. There, there's those who think that, well, I, I'm telling you the truth, so you should just receive this as I pound you over the head with it. Well, that's not really right. But on the other hand, you can fall off on the oh well, it doesn't matter as long as we all are just nice to one another. We shouldn't, you know, bother with the details. And so I would I would talk to them about this tension,、mm-hmm. speaking the truth, doing it in love. That's that's the art of real persuasion. You mentioned that younger children may be able to learn rhetoric as well. How do you go about teaching younger children? You said there may be some opportunities to do that. Yes, I think. Here's where、uh, you can start with those rhetorical figures that I mentioned.、Um, you could start really by just reading Dr. Seuss books to them. You know, if you have, you know, would you eat them in a box? Would you eat them with a fox? Would you eat them here or there? Would you eat them anywhere?、No. You know, I mean, right? I would not eat them, Sam. I am. We all know this, right? <laughs> this is rhetoric. I, you, you know, you, and when you're dealing with the youngest children, you're not going to say, "All right, let's stop here." Here's an example of epistrophe. Aren't you glad you know that? No, you just read these things so that children have them in their ear and they enjoy them.、Um, a lot of rhetoric is just loving words and playing with words, and that is something you can instill in the youngest children.、Um, that you, you know, just stop what you're doing and say, "Oh, you know, this is a great word." Oh, and look at this comes from this language here.、Um, you know, with even with maybe you know second, third graders, you know they they are learning how to use the dictionary.、Mm-hmm. Let them use a real dictionary and learn to look things up. Learn to find out what 
What language did this word come from? Uh, all those things are building their um, their stores of what they can do with rhetoric later on. And so, what does that look like if you if you start with young children and in, in teaching the the foundation of rhetoric early on, and then they start uh, looking at it more closely in the the you know sixth, seventh, eighth grade years? What does that look like then in high school? What does rhetoric look mm-hmm. like during those high school or maybe even college years? Yes. And I unfortunately have not had the opportunity mm-hmm. to put it into practice myself, but I think that is where it really comes alive um, because part of the, the value of memorization, as we talked about before, is building up a treasury of knowledge. And you need a lot of years to build that up. Mm-hmm. By high school, students are starting to have that treasury of knowledge. Uh, they also probably have gained the skills of, of logic in terms of how to put arguments together well. And so... Perhaps or perhaps. Perhaps or perhaps. <laughs> perhaps not. Yes. <laughs> right. They may have some knowledge of it, at least. Um, and so... They're ready for something a little more complex, like presenting mm-hmm. an idea uh, in rhetoric. Um, and so this can be done through through writing or through speech, where they're given kind of a situation uh, that they need to present an idea for. And again, even at the high school level, um, there's a lot that can be done just through modeling off of very specific things and taking things step by step rather than feeling, oh, well, uh, okay, my kid should be ready for rhetoric. And so I should assign him, you know, pretend you're making a speech to the UN trying to persuade them how we can have world peace. (laughs) Well, no, maybe not. (laughs) Might not be ready for that. I know we were were laughing as we talked about, you know, a student perhaps maybe has the the logic to the logic to um, to develop an argument for a particular, uh, to develop their argument for a, a specific subject or, or case, and, and we laughed. But I, I think that's something we've lost. We've lost the, the ability to to develop an argument to argue in a healthy way. Very true, um, and this was something that I would talk with my students about. Uh, that there's there's a difference between, um, you know, an argument and a fight. And an argument is just simply stating your position with evidence for why you believe it. And you don't need to make every argument into a fight. Um, And I think it is very hard, uh, particularly because most of the world, uh, you you know, you try to present your ideas with your evidence and you may get very strong resistance. But it's very important that our our children be taught that this is uh, not necessarily something where where I have to hate the other person. But again, I want to persuade the person to what is true. As we teach children rhetoric, how does that help them down the road as as future students or as as adults? What do students uh, what do adults what are they prepared to do? What are the, the types of things that they're equipped to do if they have been well-educated in rhetoric? I think that it fits very nicely with the Lutheran um, teaching on vocation, that no matter what vocation you have, rhetoric can be useful. Because again, your two pillars that everything's based on are audience and purpose. So we need pastors who are trained in 
rhetoric so that they can preach the word persuasively. And we know the word has power in itself, but but all the better when it comes from a man who is able uh, to consider his audience with love and to speak it persuasively. Just as much, uh, you know, the mother who is working with her toddler day in and day out and answering the why question 20 zillion times a day, you know, there's a certain type of rhetoric that goes on there as she considers what the child can understand and how much information to give and everything in between. You know, teachers uh, need that as they communicate with their students and we need people in the public square to do that. Um, People, you know, your grocery store clerk who is Mm -hmm. just speaking with people. Any interaction you have with other human beings is a chance to use rhetoric. Uh, Something that uh, a skill that I learned as a parent from um, from love and logic, a a, a parenting program, uh, I think is very probably very basic form of rhetoric when a a child has a toy that breaks or they can't get something to work the way they want it to do and daddy this doesn't work or daddy it's broken that's a bummer what are you gonna do Mm -hmm. i I put it back on him i I know he's coming to me for help but i i also at I, i want him to be able to solve many problems independently not that i'm not willing to help him when he truly needs help but to 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 uh, give it back to him. That is a bummer. What are you going to do? Rather than saying, oh, no, that's too bad that it's broken. Now our day is ruined. Rather, what are you going to do? Yes. And and that's a great example of how you know, the, the person, the skilled rhetorician, if you will, <laughs> um, thinks about the well-being of the, the audience, the mm-hmm. person that you're speaking to. And you know, for that young child that it's better that he learns to be independent and not to just be crushed by every uh, disappointment that comes along in life. And and so you're absolutely right. That's a wonderful example of rhetoric. And even if it turns out that he, he really does need my help, it still leaves an opportunity, a window for him to ask for my help. Yes. Yes. That doesn't, just because he said that it's broken or it doesn't work um, or it's not doing what he wants it to do doesn't mean that he necessarily needs my help. He's just sharing that with me. I'm still even giving him the opportunity if he wants to ask for my help, he can. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully equipping him to solve these problems somewhat independently in the future as well. Very true. Yeah. It also works with adults too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Garden of Eden where, where God gives Adam and Eve the chance to confess their sins by saying, where, where are you? What have you been doing? <laughs> yes, but what does Adam do? <laughs> yeah, and then he, he doesn't take up. <laughs> he, blames, he blames, in one breath, he blames, uh, let's see, the serpent, the woman, and God, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, not the best shining example of rhetoric. <laughs> in well, at, least he, at least he blames the woman and God in mm-hmm. one breath. The, the woman you put here... Right. Yes. <laughs> Made me do it. Mm-hmm. That's not very good. Is no. It? No. That's just... God in one breath. <laughs> yeah. So rhetoric, a uh, very valuable skill. Any other thoughts on um, how to teach rhetoric or what we can do as as parents at home mm-hmm. to help our children learn this this art of rhetoric? Is that right? Is it the art? Yes, of it is an art. Um, an art in that it's a creative endeavor, mm-hmm. and so. 
as with all creative things, you know, it's something that takes a lot of practice to learn. Uh, and so I do think that uh, all, ultimately all types of discipline really are uh, helping your child to learn rhetoric. When you teach, you know, the young child, uh, no, you may not scream. Okay, you can talk in a pleasant tone of voice. Now you may ask me. I mean, that's a rhetorical skill. Um, something else that, that's a part of rhetoric that might be useful uh, for middle-aged children too is to think about it, the rhetoric in terms of the types of persuasion that we have. Um, well, the Greek terms logos, pathos, and ethos are the three ways you can persuade people. So through through the logical arguments, that's primarily what we think of as our persuasive mechanism, but also through appeals to emotion and just through the character that you have as a speaker. Um, and so parents certainly model this in that you know, at some point you, you speak logically to the two-year-old about why you can't have this right now, but when they have the meltdown, you deal with it calmly rather than blowing up yourself and ultimately because you're the parent and that's who you are, they respect you. And I think that then as you get children in, in those middle years too, you can talk to them about um, why you know throwing a temper tantrum is not going to get what you want because you're trying to use this emotional appeal that doesn't fit with the logical reasoning. And, and it makes me think less of you as a persuasive person when you just go off on that sort of self-demanding purpose um, or, or in that direction. I've tried that, but I've not said it so eloquently. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> I don't know if it needs to be said eloquently so much as just modeled for children. So much of everything with children is just modeling for them what, what Christians mm -hmm. should do in their daily life. This is what we do. This is who we are, exactly. and this is what we do. Yeah, we do talk about that quite a bit. Uh, more so lately, as our child is reaching you know new stages in in development and uh, learning more about where he is developmentally as well. Yes. The I know that we could talk probably for hours, more hours about uh, other topics in classical Lutheran education. Um, and, and so maybe down the road, we could look at uh, a few more topics um, mm -hmm. in classical Lutheran education. One more topic, just briefly, we have just about a minute left. Um, this, this phrase that came up in our pre-program conversations, words mean things. <laughs> yeah. Give Speak us just a, a hint. <laughs> Uh, one of my students wrote that in her commonplace book. Words mean things. It's you know, credited to me. Um, in our world, I think people tend to think paragraphs mean things or sentences maybe mean things, but they don't think that words mean things. Each word has a meaning. And uh, in our Lutheran understanding of Scripture, we think of Christ as the word. Mm -hmm. um, we need to be really strong on the fact that words are God's gift, his way of communicating with us. They aren't just shifty things that are randomly chosen. They each have a beautiful, specific meaning, and we need to use them very carefully. Um, so much more you could say on that, too. Words 
have meaning. Words matter. So, do, so does punctuation, by the way. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Heather, it has been a pleasure having you in studio today and learning more about classical Lutheran education. Uh, and uh, also, uh, perhaps sometime we could talk more about your writing as well. I, I've seen some of your writing and enjoyed it as well. And so I, I wish you well in some of your writing endeavors. Thanks for being on my program today on Faith and Family and helping us learn more about classical Lutheran education. My pleasure. Coming up in just a moment, Thy Strong Word. You're listening to The Messenger of Good News, Worldwide KFUO. listening to Faith and Family, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO.